DocuPod, the stories behind documentaries. Welcome to DocuPod. I am Tiffany. And before we get into this episode, I want to give you a synopsis of this incredible film, Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements. It's a deeply personal memoir about a deaf boy growing up, his deaf grandfather growing old, and Beethoven the year he was blindsided by deafness and wrote his iconic saga. So their lives weave a story about what we discover when we push beyond loss. And I have the director here. Irene, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I have to give you your official introduction. She, of course, is the director of this film. But not only that, the president, owner, and founder of Vermilion Pictures and the founder of the Treehouse Project. Thank you again for being here. Thank you. We got to get started with the origin taking it all the way back to 2007 when you made your documentary here and now about your deaf parents and you talked about how you didn't want to make another film about your family but cosmic irony played a part and your son was born and he faced deafness and everything came together very thematically I'm going to use the word thematically a million times on this because if the people know me they know I love themes and this film has an incredible theme so I want to talk about the origin story and what it was like going from I don't want to make a film about my family again to here I am making a film about my family again well I think in the case of here and now which was my first documentary feature that I made back in 2007 I wanted to make that film. I made that film. I found that film. This film, Moonlight Sonata, sort of found me. Mm. It presented itself in such a way numerous times over the last 12 years, but it wasn't until my son wanted to learn the Moonlight Sonata, and I started to look into the Moonlight Sonata and the story behind Beethoven at the time he was writing it that I knew I had to make a film. My son was born right after... I made Here and Now, and I didn't know at the time that he was going deaf. So when I found out a couple of years after we released Here and Now that he was going deaf, I did start filming because HBO had approached me and said, we want to give you some resources to just track his young childhood. So I shot for about six or eight months. And I just really lacked the emotional resources to make a film because making one family film is, in my mind, enough for a lifetime. (laughs) It's a dance with your family and your own professional ideals and your own aesthetic ideals, to say the least. So I knew I had this footage. I was collecting footage of my son as a young boy going deaf but I didn't have the emotional resources really to make a film at that time so what I did was I just kept on living my family life kept on living my professional life I made four or five other films and then when he was 11 years old he told me he wanted to learn this piece and that's when I felt like the film was just shouting at me to be made I love that so much. The foundation as far as HBO, I want to talk a little bit about that as far as funding. So I love this story about HBO coming to you after working with them on Here and Now. What was that process like? It's not typical that one would make a film about their family, but I can tell you when it happens, conversations with your distributor tend towards personal conversations Mm -hmm. because the content of your film, the product you have created in a 
are distributing together is about something that's incredibly personal. So it's very easy and very natural in the years since we made Here and Now for the conversation to always go to, how are the kids? How's the family? How's your mom and dad? Mm -hmm. And I think with other distributors or other people I've worked with with whom I've made more typical films, which is to say films that do not reflect my personal life, we don't go to my family that quickly. I mean, we might if we get to know each other. So the way that we started filming, it was really very much HBO saying to me, just take the time you need and edit together some material for us so that we kind of see what your family is living through right now, what he is experiencing now. We didn't really have a focus other than he was a third-generation deaf kid. He had deaf grandparents. And would that be interesting? Or what's it like to be a deaf kid today versus when Sally and Paul were growing up in the 40s, for example? So after doing some shooting for some time, though, I think we all realized that there wasn't enough of a story hook. Mm -hmm. And just having good characters isn't enough Mm -hmm. to make a film. You have to have this sort of cosmic trifecta of something that's happening, something that's in the zeitgeist, and also good characters. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be more than just, oh, this is a great character, and we're going to reprise the here and now theme again. So fast forward 10 years, I was in a meeting with Sheila Nevins and Sarah Bernstein, longtime partners of mine at HBO, and the conversation started with, So how's the family? That's how it always starts, you know. (laughs) And uh, I told them about Jonas learning the Moonlight Sonata. We proceeded to have a three-hour meeting after that, not about this film, but about all these other films I wanted to make. Mm. And at the end of the whole conversation, Sheila said, well, I guess we got to make that film and call it Moonlight Sonata, (laughs) don't we? So after three hours of talking about all these other ideas, we came right back to the first five minutes of our conversation. So, <laughs> but what I love about that too is what you were saying about how a documentary isn't just a cool subject, it has to have this incredible storyline and these themes. And being able to admit that because sometimes we want to make something so bad that we're just like, oh, okay, well, this would be cool, but to really be like, no, we're waiting for a moment, and if that moment happens, then so be it, and if not. It's not what it needs to be. So just knowing when it's not enough, I think, is so important. And then I want to talk about the animation process because this documentary features really cool animation as far as telling Beethoven's story in it. You worked with animators Jordan DeMott and Brian Kinkley. What was it like bringing in the animation aspect of it? Well, I live in Portland, Oregon, and Portland is really a mecca for talented animators. They come from around the country. Many of them are drawn to the kind of DIY production culture we have in the town. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of people to choose from, but I didn't have endless resources. So for me, it was a matter of thinking about how I could be a vulnerable first-time director with animation, and I could make mistakes, but I could afford to make mistakes. I didn't want to back myself into a corner where I was spending every last penny I had, and there would be few revisions. Mm. I needed to know that I could make revisions. What I ended up doing was going with someone who I've known for 12 years. Brian Kinkley is an animator 
who was just entering the field when we made Here and Now, and he was my right hand in many technical things, and he's created my company logo. And Brian has gone on to be a very accomplished animation artist and animator. And what I said to him was, well, you're a freelancer. How about if I just bring you onto effectively my staff, Mm -hmm. and I hire you full-time for six months, and you just become this kind of sketch pad Mm -hmm. for all these ideas that I'm cooking in my head, but I don't know what's going to pan out. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that we are working with a 250-year-old character who lived in an era before any photographic representation. I can tell you that I'm dealing with a character who is the granddaddy of classical music. He is an icon. Mm -hmm. Everyone has their depiction of who he is and what he looks like. There's a lot of corny movies made. There's corny (laughs) animation made about him that are all depicting him in a very realistic fashion. So what I know I want is something that leaves most of his imagery to our imagination. So as a result, in this film, Beethoven is depicted as a bird, as a series of cosmic marbles that look like planets floating through the air. As you see his hand, you see his hair, you see his body draped over a piano, feeling the vibrations. Mm -hmm. But we never really give him a full form or a full face. And I think that we had a verite film that was buttressing this animation. So we let that be the photorealistic part of the story. And we really let Beethoven be where you could just let your mind wander a little bit. So I hope that that is effective and that we tried to just let you figure out what he means to you. Mm. And it's so, so important with storytelling, especially, like you said, with such an iconic person. Not only do we not have an accurate depiction of him, but also his music is so engraved in us that we all have a different connection with him. So to leave mm-hmm. that open-ended and to put it with birds and space and all these great things, oh, that, that's genius to me. Just to mm-hmm. actually take the time to think of that, really, like, and really spend time with it is, is so, so cool. So one thing that was a little inadvertent is that, you know, if there's one thing maybe many of us do think of, it's like Beethoven, yeah, he had messy hair, didn't (laughs) he? He had like wild hair. And I think that sort of contributes to this mythology around him that he was this sort of mad, deaf genius. Mm -hmm. And Beethoven may or may not have had wild and crazy hair. Mm -hmm. I really can't speak too much to that, but I can tell you that my 11-year-old son, who's the protagonist of the film, happens to have wild and crazy (laughs) hair. So I do get a lot of questions about the film, like, did you mean to make Beethoven look so much like your son? And it really was not purposeful, and nor were we trying to make our protagonist, our 11-year-old present-day protagonist, out to be a prodigy or out to be a genius or out to be, you know, a puzzling enigma of a kid. We weren't trying to do that. But the hair quotient does lead you down that path a little bit. (laughs) I mean, you even say when talking about the Moonlight Sonata itself, the fact that Jonas gravitated towards it on his own is already telling in we're not trying to make him a prodigy. We're not. We didn't push him in this direction. He found it on his own. And the same way that maybe he resembles Beethoven, he that happened on its own. And then talk about how long it took to make this film. You talk about how you started shooting for six to eight months, just going through this process with Jonas. When it came to time that, okay, this is going to be a film, 
what would that shooting look like and what did that editing look like? So you could say the film had been in the works since he was born about Mm -hmm. and we got that initial development funding from HBO. But, you know, like any parent, I shoot an iPhone. Sometimes I shot handy cams. Our family, like, I, we had a large archive of footage. Mm-hmm. But I really don't consider that part of this filmmaking process. I really think it was the last two years that we've been making the film. We shot in earnest with a plan to make a film that we were calling Moonlight Sonata for about two years. Mm-hmm. And that was about eight or nine months of Jonas learning this piece. And we did some interviewing with him. And then it was about 15 months, maybe, of filming my father, whose story arc goes over a little bit of a longer time. And then we had about nine months of editing. And I love it, too. You talk about how you had the handy cam and you have all these different things because also I was reading how your parents were filmmakers and your whole lives, your parents, you know, had the 8 millimeter camera and all that stuff. So I think that that's super cool that that was a big part of your life and now you're bringing it into his life. And Moonlight Sonata does have footage from the 1940s, quite a bit of footage um, from my family's movie collection. So, you know, you could say the film stretches over 80 years, but it's really in earnest we were making it for about two. Good stuff. And then my grand question that I love to ask, what did this film teach you about yourself either personally or professionally? Well, I think that it can be somewhat dangerous as an artist to put yourself too much inside your own product. I mean, of course, every artist will tell you that the work we create is a reflection of ourselves and is a reflection of who we want to be and what we're trying to say. But I think when you're making a memoir, which is what both Here and Now and Moonlight Sonata are, they are both documentary memoirs, there is an enormous blindside That as a filmmaker, I had, which was melancholy and the indulgence of looking through years of family images and giving you too much of that. Mm. You know, you really have to objectify your subject matter to a certain degree. And when that's your child... You know, it's it's an artistic process, but it's also one of discipline. Mm-hmm. I think it requires discipline. And, you know, you hear all of these stories, which are not uncommon in documentary filmmaking, of verite filmmaking. You know, we shot 400 hours. Honeyland, the directors of Honeyland told me this morning they shot 400 hours for a 90-minute film. You know, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> and I had hard drives filled with snapshots and you know photo album photos of my kids and of my parents and a little bit of that goes a long way Mm -hmm. so you might have to go through 600 snapshots to find one that really works for your film Mm -hmm. and I think the minute an audience feels like you're forcing them to love someone a reasonable audience is going to back away. They're going to push away. They're going to push back because they want to earn that themselves. They want to decide when to love your character. You know, so I think my biggest blind side was the closeness of my subjects. Mm-hmm. And so I was very, very cognizant to not be overindulgent. And it's so necessary, too, because objectivity and documentaries, I've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about 
how close you get to your subjects. And I know an editor who won't even meet the subject of a documentary because she doesn't want to put her point of view into it. But then I've talked to other directors who say, I know you're not supposed to, but I showed my film to my subjects while we were editing it to make sure that it checked out well with them to make sure that their story was being told properly. So there's all these different ways to do it. And as a mother of the subject and a daughter of the other subject, wanting to still make it objective, but also loving these people and wanting to make sure that you tell a good story. I think that that juxtaposition is very, very interesting. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, sure. One of the last things I want to talk about is I read a review on nonfix.com and he mentioned that this film was probably therapy for you. And I've had a lot of conversations on my different shows about how creating is therapy for a lot of people. Do you agree with that? And if so, what did that feel like? I would definitely say that shooting the film was like pulling teeth. Mm -hmm. It was not therapy. Um, sometimes therapy can feel like pulling teeth, but as it's happening, you know it's good. Yes. That was not the case. It was like I was asking to film situations that were so delicate with my family that I was really risking a lot. Yeah. And I was risking pushing my children away from me, pushing my parents away from me, and yet I've done this long enough to know that you really need to dig in deep to make a film that deserves someone staying in their seat for 90 minutes to watch it. You know, we are awash in poor storytelling that is made, I think, in some ways by very, very intelligent and well-intentioned people. But, you know, Netflix doesn't even show credits anymore. There's a diminishing respect for the craft and the storytellers behind these stories. So I will say that the therapeutic part of it for me was the pouring over the dailies, pouring over years and decades worth of photographs, eight millimeter films, old video from the 80s that never got used, and also a third element that was not my family, pouring over Beethoven's letters. Mm -hmm. There are numerous published volumes out there that are just his letters. And it's like the most powerful and visceral original source. 75% of them, at least as I recall, were like talking about publishing deals. And I've talked with this person mm -hmm. and he wants to, do, you know, but you kind of skim through that stuff if yeah. you're not the musicologist looking for that musical history. Yeah. And when he talks about the rapture he feels when he makes music, the anxiety he feels about his increasing deafness, this fear he feels that people will laugh him out of town mm -hmm. if the Ludwig van Beethoven is no longer able to create music. Reading through that stuff was therapeutic to me because it made me feel closer to someone who I always just thought of as this historical figure that was on a giant pedestal of our culture. Mm -hmm. And Instead, I saw him as a human who had anxieties and fears and whimsies and all these things that just really brought me closer to him. And I think that just the experience of working with what I call original source material, mm -hmm. it's not a review. It's actually his writing. Mm -hmm. And then I would even like look up his handwriting. And then I went to the Beethoven Center at San Jose State University, which is just down the highway here. 
I just felt like, oh my God, he's coming alive. And that's why we wanted to have some handwritten animation. So just to recap, you know, I think it's the pouring over of the material and watching it over and over and over again, letters, photographs, films, people you know and people you don't know, that's the therapy. The filming, the inserting of yourself, the asking to be a part of a scenario with your camera, asking someone if you can put a microphone on them when they're not even sure they want to speak out loud what they're about to say, that is pulling teeth. That is not therapy. But ultimately, the end product can be therapeutic, I think. So, so powerful. Goodness. And you talked about pulling teeth and you talked about people you know and people you don't know. And one of my favorite stories that I heard was about Taria and her sitting down with your father for three hours and how impactful that was to have her have the conversation with him as somebody who's not a part of the family, somebody who's working on this film. And I just love how wise you were to know that if I sit down with him, he's just going to say, you know, this story or gloss over things and not really give the full story the way he did with Taria. So that's just one of my favorite facts about the film. (laughs) Now the screenings. It's coming this weekend to the San Francisco International Film Fest. That will be on Sunday. As always, all the screening information, links, all the ways that you can get involved with this film are going to be in the show description. So this Sunday at San Francisco International Film Festival, then Hot Docs in Toronto for the international premiere on April 29th and 30th, as well as May 3rd. Then back here in the Bay Area in San Rafael for Docklands on May 5th, and then Mendocino Film Festival on May 31st and June 1st. Anything else you want to tell the people? Very few people have seen this film. We've only been at a handful of festivals since our Sundance premiere, and it has been a very powerful process to see the visceral, tearful, rapturous responses I have seen after the film, people approaching me. And I think it's because we all have a family, Mm -hmm. even if that family is not someone we're related to. And if we don't have a family, that's also our family story, that we're living life in a more solitary fashion. And I think that this film is really ultimately a family anecdote. It's a family story. I don't go outside of the family very much. You don't see much about our lives outside of family life and music. And I think that my framing, if you liken a documentary to a picture frame, you know, there's all this stuff that's going on outside of the frame of the picture, but I just chose to be very, very intimately focused on the day-to-day family life. And I have thought it to be a rather revelatory process. Sometimes I have felt overexposed after showing a film for 90 minutes about my family where you're looking at the inside of my home and you're seeing what my kitchen looks like and you're seeing, you know, my kids have crosswords with me or each other, whatever it might be. But I'm also then doing Q&As where usually the questioning even probes deeper. And I'm happy to do it this year with the film as I bring it out to the world. But if I know myself, then I'll probably kind of withdraw and go back in again and go back to doing what I've been doing, which is making films about people who I'm getting to know and people who I don't know, but I want to know. And so I'm hoping that what I'm going to get out of this film, selfishly speaking, as an artist, is just this lesson, this life lesson, this artistic lesson on what are your blind spots and what are the bounties when access is no issue. 
Like when you have these people in the palm of your hand because they're your mother and father and they're your children, that is something not to take lightly. Mm -hmm. It's something not to abuse. (laughs) And how do you do it right? And how do you do it in a way that's not indulgent? Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that those values that I've, or those lessons that I've sort of had to learn and earn over making two documentary feature memoirs about my family, I'm hoping that then I can take that out to my next projects in the future that have nothing to do with people I know. Yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing those lessons with us. I think as creatives and people who want to make films and just honestly humans, at the end of the day, it comes down to the human experience and how we take in information and how we operate with other people. And a lot of the lessons that you shared can be applied to almost anything. So thank you so much for the lessons. Thank you, Tiffany. And thank you for being here. I of appreciate course, it. Of course. And as always, thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on whatever you're listening on. Once again, all the screenings and links are going to be in the show description. And then reach out to me. Let me know what your favorite part was or just say hi. I'm on Twitter at Special Says and on Instagram, it's at Special Says as well.